0: This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. Hey, before we start today's show, a quick content warning here. Uh, my guest today tells a story that involves some drugs, some violence, and even a little international intrigue. So, if that's off-putting to you, then go check out our archives and listen to another show. Okay, here we go. When the
1: day is swallowed And it just is hollow Your defenses down. She is the loudest
0: sound. What's the worst gig you ever played?
1: Oh, there's a few. Okay, so like I used to play any open mic night because that was like one opportunity, you know what I mean, when like you're starting out. I did one in North Hollywood. Everybody there were the people that came with me in my car, which was my boyfriend and my friend, and then the venue owner. And then this one manager I had somehow coaxed out to come check me out because, you know, I was still very young and idealistic at the time about my skill level. And it was just humiliating.
0: Latifah Phillips is a songwriter, a musician, and a record producer. Her projects include The Autumn Film, The One You're Hearing Now, Modus Spira, and Page CXVI, a band that writes new and innovative arrangements of hymns for the church.
1: And then the manager sat me down and I'm so thankful he was honest with me, but he just basically said, you have an interesting voice, but it's undeveloped and it's not good enough yet. So he was like, you should go take some voice lessons. And he passed me the name of a vocal teacher that I actually studied with for six months. So but at that show, I felt so defeated. I was like, nobody was here and it turns out I suck. Like, oh no. Oh, how she was. had another show as Autumn Film in the middle of, I think it was Arkansas. And it was with like a pop punk Christian band. It was kind of like a screamoey kind of thing. And there was literally one person there. And because that one person showed up, we had to play. There's a pine sitting on a hollow limb. He seems to have the whole morning out right in front of him and everything he sees. From the branch that he's sitting on It seems to hustle leaves and the colors all around Now first he sings, and then he goes And what it means, it's hard to know
0: From Harbor Media, you're listening to Cultivated Conversations about faith and work Today on the show, Latifah Phillips We'll talk about making records, about how she found herself making music in the first place in spite of lots of pressure to do other things, about what it's like to be an Arab American touring around the country and playing music in churches. And she'll tell the craziest story you'll hear on this season of Cultivated. So stay with us. Okay. start at the beginning then. Where do you come from? where did you grow up?
1: I was born, raised in Houston, Texas. My dad was from Yemen. My mom was from Kansas. And they lived all over the world before they had kids. They were married 10 years prior to having babies and finally settled in Houston and then decided to go nowhere for the rest of their life. So I, of course, thought that they were insanely dull. But as I got older, heard the stories of all their adventures. I
0: guess I'm curious how a guy from Yemen and a girl from Kansas, how did they find each other?
1: It's a really good story. Do you want the long version? <laughs> um, yeah. So my my dad grew up in a third world village in Yemen and his mom passed away when he was young and his dad ended up remarrying. And so he got a lot of half brothers and half sisters pretty immediately. And he, as the oldest, felt very responsible. And he was actually supposed to be the next prophet for his village. So he had the whole Quran memorized at 10. Uh, his grandfather was the prophet of their village and it skips a generation. So that's kind of how it goes. When his family needed some income, his dad basically sent him to Saudi Arabia to work for a company called Aramco, which is Arab American oil company. And they didn't really keep great records. So Aramco gave him a birth date. They gave him an age. They said, Oh, you look about 12. So you know, so like that's what you're gonna be. And he started in the mailroom, but he was really bright and grew up at the company and they taught him how to be an architect by the time he was 18. And by the time he was in his like early, mid-20s, they decided to send him to the States to spend two years at an American college getting an accounting degree. So he transferred himself actually to CU, University of Colorado in Boulder, which is where I went, and met my mom haphazardly on a blind date because he was making such good grades that the king of Saudi Arabia told him he had to live with his nephew who was doing a lot of drugs because it was the late 60s in Boulder. So it's like everyone's tripping on acid and doing coke and like nobody thinks it's dangerous and like, you know, all the things. So my dad had been there for a year and had become like president of the Arab American Club, making straight A's, you know, because he's like, this is my opportunity. I've come from nothing, Uh, taking it real seriously, never doing drugs, straight laced. He gets this message from the Kingsguard saying, you know, you need to go live with Faisal.
0: Real quick here, Faisal is Faisal bin Musaïd. He was the nephew of the king of Saudi Arabia at the time. And this was kind of in the mid-70s. Okay, back to the story.
1: And my dad's like, I don't really want to. Like, he's he doesn't take anything seriously. Like, this is my chance. And the king's guard says, I think you should do what the king asked you to do. And so he moved in with Faisal. And my mom had transferred from Trinity She ended up at CU because her brother was at CSU and just, you know, had a random roommate, was a sophomore. And somebody walks in fall semester to her dorm, like like the common area, and says, hey, he wants to go on a blind date with an Arabic prince and his roommate. (laughs) And... It's for real. And my mom's like, I'll go, you know? And so she and her roommate go. And what's hilarious is that, so her roommate was kind of into the whole acid scene too. So that she kind of naturally paired off with Faisal. My mom naturally paired off with my dad. And he was really cute too. I mean, she was beautiful as well. But um, she thought since he was so proper and formal that he was the prince for like the first, like three dates they were on.
0: This is almost the plot of Coming to America.
1: I know, isn't it? I I remember when I saw that movie, I was like, where is my queen? But yeah, so uh, after like the third date, he feels like he has to tell her. And of course, then she's like, I don't care, we're in love, you know? And then what's wild is that they had been dating about six months and Faisal was tripping on acid and wanted to jump out the balcony because he thought he could fly. And my mom and dad decided, we're just going to like keep Faisal from jumping out the window all night because we don't want him to kill himself. So they literally wrestle with him t- to not do this the whole night. And then the next day, my dad goes back with my mom to Kansas, which is a whole other story, P.S. And then Faisal goes back to Saudi Arabia and then assassinates his uncle, who's the king. Oh, my gosh. You can actually look this up in history books. This is for real. And apparently the rumor is that as the king, as he was dying, he's like forgive him, you know, show him mercy. And then they don't, and they cut off his head and, like, parade it around, like, the local courtyard. And my dad got majorly interviewed and berated by the king's guard. You know, did you know of his plans and all those things? And, of course, he didn't.
0: I'm sorry. So, Faisal didn't get his head cut off, or he did? Oh, Oh, he he did. did. Okay. Oh, yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The, The king died, and they were like, yeah, this is happening. You know what I mean? Like, they just, that's just how they do their law. So, yeah, man. So, yeah, my mom and my dad together and my dad was on a Ramco's bill and he had to go back and my mom who was you know very independent was like I'm not going back to Saudi Arabia like I'll live any place in the world with you but as a female I just don't want to live there in this time and so my dad had to go back and then couldn't get out of the country and so he finally like writes her a letter that says you know I love you but you're gonna have to move on there's no way I'm getting out of here and at that time, you know, people are actually doing snail mail. So like he's handwriting her letter, sticks it, and it has to go across the ocean, the whole deal. So it takes like three weeks for her to get the letter. And then, not joking, the day she gets the letter, and in, in that three weeks, my dad had somehow gotten somebody to smuggle him to France. And then left France, got to New York City. The day she gets the letter, she's like weeping, reading it. And he calls her. And, he, and this is your girl. He goes, Patty, I have come to America to marry you.
0: <laughs>
1: and, but then he's like, but I'm in New York and I have no money. Like you have to say, you have to come get me, basically. And so they straight up went to the courthouse and like green card married and didn't tell anybody and had a real wedding a year later and the only reason i found out that story it was because after my dad had passed reed and i were going through my dad's office and i found two wedding certificates a year apart and i was like mom did you get married twice <laughs> she was like oh um um and then you know she was like i'll tell you this but you can never tell your grandmother because she'll be so upset that she paid for a wedding my grandmother has now passed. Rest in peace. So no, I feel like I can say it in public on the on a podcast. But yeah, so that's their story.
0: Did Christianity come along in your life? I'm guessing your father was not a Christian.
1: So he was Muslim. So he was interesting. Like he was very devout in faith, but then didn't do a lot of uh, practicing. You know, like he'd always acknowledge Ramadan, but wouldn't always practice it. You know, it was just really interesting. And he also felt very American because it was the country where he had a better life. He was devout in a sense, I guess I would say. And then my mom was super into like new age crystals, like she read a new age book every day and used to do like spirit guide traveling. And her dad actually started the occult in Kansas City, which is really strange. So like we have this really interesting uh, spiritual lineage in our family. (laughs) When I was a baby, I was a pretty sick kid. I guess that I had stopped crying and I had really bad asthma. And so my mom was in bed and all of a sudden felt paralyzed and didn't feel like she could get up to get me. And my dad was just, you know, sleeping through the whole thing. And my mom's little sister had gotten saved and was like sending her Bibles all the time and that kind of stuff. And, and my mom was like, no, stop this, you know. And, and so she felt paralyzed and she was really nervous about me. And she says she made a deal with God that if she could get up to get me, that she would like check him out. And as soon as she did that, she said she felt like released and she could get up and she went up and got me and walked into the like the TV room and turned on the TV and it's like Pat Robertson on the Seven Hundred Club. Oh my gosh. And she like totally gets saved watching the Seven Hundred (laughs) Club. And then my sweet mom, you know, because, you know, she didn't really grow up in the church and she didn't like have an understanding of what it's supposed to look like, quote unquote, that she was just mostly interested in like what's nearby and where can I play the piano? Because she was an awesome piano player, like outstanding. So we ended up at this all Chinese charismatic church a couple miles from our house.
0: Wow.
1: (laughs) And... That's where I grew up, going to church. And man, I loved it. I mean, it was like the real deal. Like we showed up at 9 a.m. And then like the whole church, you know, church goes on for however long until the Spirit has decided it is over. And then everyone brings food and they like pull out tables and we eat and we're there till like 3 p.m. You know, and it's like real family oriented. And I ended up meeting Jesus when I was at VBS there. I was five years old, and I remember doing it, and and then I told my mom at home, you know, Mom, I've accepted Jesus in my heart. It's been pretty good since then. Like, I just wanted to let you know, and she's crying, you know. The topic of faith was a sensitive topic in our house. By the time my mom had converted to Christianity, they'd been married over 10 years. Reed and I have been married seven years. We've been together 10 years, and that would be like a really big change in a partnership 10 years in. I think that even as a child even though I didn't understand the complexities I felt the complexities of that kind of interwoven faith experience at home and so I think we all just knew to be sensitive about it my dad's the majority of his clients his investors were all from the Middle East and so there was a point of conversation as we got a little older that was like don't talk about Christianity don't Say you're a Christian. Don't talk about Jesus. If you have any like shirts from Christian camp, those have to go in the bottom of the drawer. We would like all like had this like, if we knew somebody was coming over, or somebody's knocked at the door and we didn't know who it was because sometimes people would show up. We'd have this like 30 second sweep of the house where we'd like hide every cross and Bible. So it was like this clandestine Faith at home, but then like when I was at school, it's like no big deal. So it's just a kind of counterintuitive public-private. It's the
0: opposite of what a lot of Christians who grow up in Christian homes experience, because yes, they're embarrassed yes, by their exactly. faith when they're at school and <laughs> yeah, you know,
1: totally. and at home it's it's all Pat
0: Robertson and Bill Gaither all the time. Yeah,
1: right? yeah, opposite, opposite. It was really fascinating in the sense when I look back on it now. I, I think you know when you're little, it's just what you understand, and so it doesn't necessarily feel peculiar. I, I knew that I felt different just because of my skin color and my hair texture and my dad had an accent and my house smelled different than my friends' houses. And like my dad literally burned frankincense once a week, you know, like it was amazing. So I know I already felt a little separate in in that way. So that was like a whole nother journey of figuring out who I am. At 12, we switched to an all-white, five-point Calvinist Presbyterian church because my sister's friends went to youth group there, and my mom wanted my sister to feel connected to her friends at school who were going to church, and so we just switched. And, I mean, talk about a black-and-white experience. That's actually where I discovered hymns. I remember thinking the music sounded ghastly to me. Now I love Oregon, but it was horribly boring as a kid. And I just remember flipping through the hymnal and seeing the language and saying to myself, this feels like poems. I would just read the hymnal as everybody else sang worship. And at the time I didn't realize it, but I think that's where the seed was planting for me for wanting to reimagine these songs, even at that point. for songs of loudest praise, teach me some melodious sonnet, sung by flaming tongues above, raise a mount I'm fixed upon, mount of
0: So when did you know you wanted to be an artist?
1: I think that deep down, I always knew from a very small age. It was like music was this thing that made me feel more alive and more connected to the universe um, than anything else. It was like my safe haven. It was the way I felt I could communicate. But because of where I grew up, it was very like kids become doctors, lawyers, dentists, those kinds of things. And that's what you say you're going to be or politicians and my dad's. I'm not joking or exaggerating at all. His expectation of me was to be the first female president of the United <laughs> States of America.
0: Well, isn't that, that's kind of a thing. Like, like yeah. Im- immigrants typically have high expectations yes. on their children. So you probably totally experienced that with education and school. Oh, yeah. And,
1: oh yeah. yeah. I was lucky, like school was easy for me, so it wasn't stressful. But I was like, okay, so like I have to be president. Like enough so that when I graduated from high school, I was most likely to be the United States president, like in the yearbook. I wrestled with that for a long time, and then I was 18, in college, freshman year, undeclared major, like all the typical stuff. And I was sitting in the stairwell of my dorm because it had great acoustics. And I had taught myself that song, Peace by Jennifer Knapp. Do you know that song? (laughs) I do know that song. You are my God and my salvation, whom have I to fear? And the guitar part's like really beautiful. And it just made me feel like super amazing to learn it. And I had moved, this is going to be so embarrassing, but I had moved myself to tears. Like I played it for myself, by myself in the stairway and then was like, this is beautiful. (laughs) So Jay... A-Nap, shout out, you know, that was literally the moment that I was like, I have to do this for the rest of my life. To be honest, I didn't even have the skill set at that point to to do it. But I was like, okay, I need to start writing songs. I need to just like start doing this thing. And at the time, the crew ministry, the college ministry at CU had just lost their like senior worship leader kind of person. And I just kind of had gotten thrown in because I play guitar and they basically gave me a platform to start leading worship a ton. I had led like in my high school and junior high youth groups, but this was different. This was on a stage with a band, with drums. You're plugged into a sound system and it's loud and awesome. and, And that gave me experience to figure out the difference between performance and leading, which took me like a number of years, but also like how to lead a band. I started writing songs. I made my first record by the time I was a senior in college. I had a little bit of money and then had somehow convinced my guitar player to give me (laughs) $5,000. That I was going to pay him back. From
0: all those album sales. Yeah.
1: And you know what, dude? It totally worked. In some ways, I think it was amazing because it gave me the courage and like the chutzpah, if you will, to like keep making records. But basically, like I was a senior and crew was going to let me play like the big Christmas conference, like the regional Christmas conference. And I was like, and I was going to get to do like a concert of my own music. And then I was also leading worship for the conference. This is before they were like hiring like big time bands and stuff. And so I was like, this many people are coming to the conference. So if I print this many CDs and this many people buy them, we're going to break even and it's going to be awesome. And it totally worked. If anybody who's like listening to this is actually a musician, that like never happens like that. It's so, so like the fact that it happened the first time, I was like so thankful for it because I think that gave me enough courage when it didn't work like that for the rest of my career to keep pushing through. So I like knew my freshman year, I called my parents to announce to them I was going to be an artist for the rest of my life. I was trying to decide if I was gonna be pre-med or political science major. And all of a sudden I'm calling like, I'm gonna be an artist. My mom is so supportive. My dad is like waiting for this phase to pass. I ended up declaring a fine arts major. I was a painting major. I should have just left school. I mean, to be honest, I should have just not had gone to college. I think about that a lot. Like, should I, I should have just dived in or like gone to audio engineering school or something like that. But it it was what it was. I made beautiful friendships and, you know, had a great time.
0: Do you still paint?
1: Uh, You know, I just painted a camel for Reed's birthday (laughs) um, two weeks ago. And it's the first time I painted in years. And it was a blast, man. But I got half a master's in painting. Like I even went to graduate school and then ended up leaving halfway through being like, what am I doing? I have to be a musician. Like I I know this in my soul and I keep taking these caveats. Like, well, what it really happened is, you know, I was in love and my boyfriend wanted to be an actor. So we moved to Los Angeles and I was thinking like, I could be a musician and you can be an actor and this is just going to work because I just had that really successful concert where I sold all those CDs. <laughs> you know, and then of course, inevitably that relationship ended. We broke up and then I was still in school and I just, I, I had this like revelatory moment where I was like, I love to paint. I love this, but this is not my like soul language. And I was like, I got to get out of here. And so I did the opposite of what I should. And I like went to the place where I had no job offer, no place to live in the center of the country where there was not like a lot of music happening. I moved back to Colorado. The week I moved back, I met Reed for lunch, who's now my husband and my drummer, Dan, who's also in Page 6 VI. We were all living in LA and it all left the same month. And we didn't know each other in LA. Which is crazy. Dan was working for a hardcore hip hop studio where literally all they did was like hardcore rap, and he was an intern and like helped them park Escalades and went and got food. And so yeah, we all just you know decided to leave, even though we didn't know each other, and landed. And they had heard I was going to start a band through mutual friends. I met these guys. Reed handed me like a CD, like songwriting. He did like Reason programming. If anybody remembers Reason, and. Then, like electric stuff, acoustic stuff. He had this, like, he has this really sweet, like, oasis voice, like a British male voice when he sings and, like, had songwriting. And I knew Dan from Credibility was a really good drummer, but actually, I had agreed to let him be my drummer before I'd even heard him play, which is super weird. But he called me and was like, Hey, I got my tax return and I can either buy a drum set or, like, spend it on school. Like, I need to know now if I'm going to be in your band. And I was like, buy the drums. <laughs> so, I really hope he's good. I've worked with a lot of drummers now, and I can still say Dan is one of the, he's a world-class man. He's such a, He's such a good drummer. Good drummers are hard to find. We started the Autumn Film, which is our indie pop rock trio that we toured for a couple years across the United States and was leading worship on Sundays to stay in the black on tour under no moniker because we just loved to do it and enjoyed it but that wasn't like what we were doing. In our minds, we were like, we're doing the club. We had gotten courted by Atlantic and we were like on that path. And they asked us to come to a residency in LA. And all three of us had just left LA like two and a half, three years prior. And we're like, we're not going back there. There's no way. I think we all knew for our souls, it would not be good for us. And then we had just had a couple sit us down in Phoenix and had begged us to, to put our hymns that we had been leading on the side because I just gravitated towards hymns and because I was stepping into all these churches where we had like never been before we had started to form relationships you know but hymns were also good because a lot of people had either grown up with them or knew them and I don't really have an affinity for contemporary worship and didn't feel moved by them I didn't know of a lot of other projects where I felt like inspired musically and spiritually in the context of corporate worship and so I think that Dana Reed and I were like, well, if we're going to do this, let's let's at least play like stuff that we like to play. That's when I started to kind of like, working on this hymn stuff and it was really just for fun. It didn't start as this like this is our band and this is going to like make us money and this is like we see like a hole in the market and we're trying to fill it. It was nothing like that, you know.
0: But there was a sense that there was something missing from what you'd experienced in other corporate worship. I mean, that was right about the time the RUF stuff was happening. That was when we were, you know, at Sojourn we're starting to look at doing different. It was like almost all at once everybody woke up and and thought You know, there's more to worship than how happy we are and how how great everything is in life.
1: Yeah, or what CCM's playing. We had no idea what RUF or Sojourner or Indelible Grace, we had no idea who you guys were. And so like- what I think is really rad about- Most people to
0: this day- have no I know,
1: yeah, we same were. with Page. People are like, you're in a band? What's the name? And I'm like, Paige CXVI? They're like, Paige Sexy? And I'm like, no, <laughs> but you can, you can call us that. It's cool. But what I think is rad about that is that I love the impulse of the spirit moving through God's larger church to have a resurgence of connecting to ancient language and ancient poetry. And, and I remember the first time somebody said, oh, did you hear so-and-so's doing this too? Are you like really pissed that like, They're doing the same thing you are. And my immediate reaction was like, no, I'm so excited because these songs don't belong to me. They belong to all of us. And I want them to be everywhere. And it should hopefully inspire us to then author new content that is as meaningful and that discusses as broad of topics as the hymns. There's so many hymns, you know. Yeah, I was jazzed about it when I heard about lots of other people doing it. Tis so sweet to trust in G. And to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, and to know the saith the Lord. And I think as we get older, we realize nothing belongs to us. And so to even like pretend like it does or be tight fisted with it is so counterintuitive, in my opinion, of what it is to even be an artist. Cause we're meant to share and we're meant to inspire and we're meant to help vocalize and give away. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. When you think about what's happening in music culture in the last 20 years and like the deconstruction of labels and the idea of everything being on the internet and software being available, I think of it in the sense of it helps people who just want to make something to make something. Because like we're never gonna be on the level of like a Chris Tomlin or a Matt Redman. Like, and when I say level, I mean income level. But that's not my goal, right? My goal is I have something inside of me that I have to release. So therefore I have to make it and put it out into the universe. And I have no idea how it'll be received. But if it creates enough income for me to make another one, that gets me jazzed. You know what I mean? Because I have no shortage of ideas. And so far, like, I feel like there's been some good ones in there. They're not all great, but to me, that's been so exciting. You know what I mean? Like, I always say, like, you know, music's not a pie. Like, there's not limited pieces for you to love. Like, just because I love Image and Heap doesn't mean I love Radiohead any less. If anything, the church needs more compelling art than less right now
0: yeah and, and like what you're saying, like there's sort of this end of the era of gatekeepers where you had to get the approval of a label because they were the only ones who could hook you up with the equipment. two hundred bucks on Amazon, and you're up and running yeah, I know, totally. <laughs> I mean,
1: like it's been freaky, like we are by no means famous, but it's been really cool to find out people listening to our music in places I never would have expected. It doesn't give me like an inflated sense of worth or self, but it makes me feel like encouraged to keep creating. I think what's cool, is too, people are learning how to find music other places and radio or, you know, all those things. And it's stuff like your podcast or blogs. People are talking on the internet now, and there's a lot of bad things about the internet, but I think it's one of the good things is that, like, we have more access to good content.
0: One thing I'm aware of is how much work goes into any one of those projects. Like, they're just an immense amount of work. But generally, when you talk to young artists, they're pretty idealistic about it. And the actual work, the grinding out of of making a record, of doing the writing and of getting it right, it's immense, right? Right. So what would you say, like, how would you describe that to somebody, you know, some 16 year old bright eyed kid comes to you and says, I want to be an artist. I want to be, I want to do what you do. How do I get ready for that?
1: Yeah, I I would just say, don't be afraid of really hard work. Don't be afraid to fail and don't expect for everything to work out as you think it will. You have to do the work to have the talent. And like, I learned to make records by making records. So my skill level is so much higher than it used to be. Ira Glass does like a really good podcast on this about taste level. He's using it for storytelling. But if you're starting out, you have that ideal, you probably have some good taste. Like you can say, this band is great. This band is great. This songwriter's amazing. But you may not have the skill set yet to create talent up to your taste level. And so don't be afraid to spend the time and the years and the energy to get your talent up to your taste level. I think A lot of people give up before that point. So I think that's a good word of encouragement. The times are changing. Like if you want to make a living as an artist, you have to be just as creative for your strategy and financially as you do in your art. You have to be willing to kind of flex and roll with the times and, like, figure out where and how to monetize what when because I think it's going to be constantly changing. And I think the real independent artists that will make it in the next 20 years are the ones who aren't afraid to try new things and be bold and figure out how to monetize what they're doing and create value and worth to their tribe who's going to buy it. I've met a few artists that, like, are young and just, like, don't want to go on the road ever. And I'm sure it's possible, but I think that, like, it the it's the best way, man. It's just like playing over thousands and thousands of shows and sets at this point, they, it just makes you better at what you do. There's no way to get there quick.
0: Tell me where Moda Spear comes from. When did, when did you start that project?
1: Yeah, so we came off the road almost three years ago as Page TXVI. We toured for eight or nine years. Dan and Jenny wanted to start having their family and Reed wanted to kind of start this business thing and I was like, well, if everyone's going to do their thing, I'm gonna make another record. <laughs> Cause I like I don't wanna do anything else. And so I knew like, you know, all bands come to an end. And you know, Paychex VI is not in an end in a sense, I feel like we're in sabbatical, because we also love each other and have even talked about making more records. But I was like, I need I wanna make something solo, but I wanna do it in a time where it's respectful to my bandmates. So I had some songs I started working on. And and the truth is Reed and I, you know, towards the end of our touring, we're just in a season in our marriage where we had stopped being kind to one another. And, you know, there wasn't, like, any huge moral failing or, like, something crazy, but it was like we just started treating each other like roommates and not, like, spouses. And we had a real come-to-Jesus moment on the road outside of Seattle and decided, like, we're staying married, we're in this. The days when we are weary and life just gets to hell. By the time that Reed and I had gotten through the really hard stuff and started the healing process and been in the healing process for a while, I looked at him and I was like, I wanna write about this. We have a lot of content about infatuation love and a lot of content about like the Lemonade record. Like, I'm so pissed at you, you cheated on me. I have permission to leave you if I want, you know. So we have a lot of those extreme sides of love, but there's not a lot of content about the nuance of committed day in, day out, intimate relationship. Talk about it, particularly because I've been in the church space for a long time now. I've discovered that we have a lot of conversation around marriage that doesn't feel quite vulnerable enough for people to really say to someone, hey, I don't think I like my spouse anymore, or I feel trapped, or I feel like I made a huge mistake. And I have these real feelings And I feel like I'm going to claw my eyes out, but I don't want to share it with anybody because I don't want people to judge my spouse or judge my marriage. We like hold it in this thing where we feel like it represents all of who we are. And the reality is like, you know, commitment's hard. It takes a lot of constant work and energy.
0: When she was touring with Paige CXVI, the band would get booked in all kinds of churches. And as a woman of color, showing up in some of these spaces caused surprise and concern and at times tension
1: having the name Latifah, usually the first thing is, if they have done like no research on what I look like, is you're not black. You know, because Latifa Phillips, which is my married name, before I was married, it was Latifa Alatas. And that was like, where are you from? People could never guess. What's actually kind of fascinating is pre-9-11, everyone would guess I was from Latin America. And then post-9-11, people started being able to identify Arabic-looking features, and now people can guess I'm Middle Eastern. The one thing I rub up against a little frequently in my like career over the last 10 years is being like the only woman of color in a space. Generally, we've been invited to many spaces where I'm not joking, the sentence is either, you're the first brown female we've ever let on stage, you're the first brown female we've ever allowed on stage, or like the nicer version is, you're the first brown female that's ever been up front. I would say that happens... 80%-ish of the places we've played. I was in my twenties when we were doing all our touring and very early 30s. And I feel like my reaction has always been if somebody invites me into their space, like I'm not here to blow anything up. I'm here to love you guys and to share and and have some sort of contemplative experience with one another. And that's all I'm here to do. But I think that now that I've been out of it a little longer and I'm older and I've been having more language. I think what I realized is that nowhere did anybody go before me to their community and say, hey, this is going to be a change for us. This is going to make some of you wildly uncomfortable, but this is why we're doing this. I I will say like, you know, most of the time people are lovely. There's a few spaces I would not return to. Because, like, man, there was one time where I was at a church, and I'm not going to name any of these churches, but, like, they literally told me, you know, like, 20 minutes before we were leading that, like, they've never had a woman up front. And that even though I was singing songs to not speak on the microphone, because any sort of speaking would be considered, like, leading, quote, unquote. And so then I said, well, what if I want to, like, sing another chorus? Like, can I say, let's all sing— or let's go back to verse one, you know, cause like when you're leading worship in the moment, sometimes you feel the need to reflect back on a certain part of the song. Cause the congregation could maybe like use that repetition of what that's saying. And he said, the PowerPoint will lead the congregation. <laughs> and what I didn't say, but I sort of wish I had said was, so you want a computer that's not indwelt with the Holy spirit to lead the people over me.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and somehow they've worked it out in their minds that the, the PowerPoint is masculine.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which is even better. But BS, the PowerPoint girls like was a PowerPoint girl, <laughs> which I was like, that's hilarious. My favorite though, are, are people where I show up and they thought I was supposed to be a man because my voice is lower. I have a male tenors range. And so it's like, you know, a bit androgynous, I guess. And, um, that's a big disappointment. So like, that, that's like a whoopsie. You know what I mean? So.
0: What's next? Do you think you'll do another Moda Spirit record?
1: I'm feeling like it. You know, like I'm feeling like really inspired even more so by like Stax records and gospel records and jazz records and R&B. And I think I want to move Moda a little more R&B this next next round, but we'll see. Like, I think my favorite thing about Modus Spira is that there's no rules. And because it's just me, I can just go down the rabbit hole as far as I want. You know, with Page 6 VI and Autumn Film and any kind of band record, I love and deeply respect my bandmates. They are the best of men. And you always have to consider one another, even in the art making. So even though I spend a lot of time arranging and producing and working on those records, I'm always thinking about how it's representing all of us. And you have to do that because it is all of you. And with Modus it's not like that. The flip side is that it's lonelier and you're like post record release blues is like really bad because it's just you. I flipped out for like a week afterwards. I was like, this is horrible. <laughs> but that's
0: every project, right? Every project feels oh, that way.
1: Oh, absolutely. But, but what I learned, though, and it was good for me from my solo artists I produced. I had forgotten the burden is different when it's solo versus a band. Cause it's like when you release a re- like a record on like release day with the band, you're all talking to each other, and like if it's going bad or good, you're either celebrating or crying together. With Moda Spira, man, it's like it was me.
0: Well, you need people around you. I mean, the good thing about it and the hard thing about solo projects is, when is it done?
1: I know. When do you know it's done? I know. You know. I think I had had an inflated sense of ability going into the solo record because at, at that point I had made like 25 records most of my own, but some for other people, and I thought, you know, I have a good head on my shoulders about this, I'm also a producer, so I should surely be able to step outside of myself and be like, this is good, this is bad, or this is done, this is not done. My rule was, every song on the record has to give me a literal feeling in my belly. If that doesn't happen on every tune, it's not going on the record. Because I've made records where I've been, like, bummed. I had doubts about a song, and then I still, like, in hindsight, I'm like, yeah, that song was not the right choice. I stuck to that, but that's why I ended up bringing Jordan in. It's because I was like, I am totally losing perspective. Like, I don't even know what's good anymore, and I thought I was going to do better than this, you know? But we need people, man. It's a good thing.
0: You'll find links to Moda and Page CXVI in our show notes. We've also included links to some great live performances that Moda did on YouTube. Make sure and check out our other episodes. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. And if you really like what we're doing here, you can go to harbormedia.com slash donate and help us keep going. Thanks to everybody who chipped in at the end of the year last year. You really blew us away. Stay tuned for a preview to our next episode. But first, this show was written, produced, and edited by me. It was mixed by Mark Owens at ResonateRecordings.com. Our theme song is by Roman Candle. Our soundtrack today is by Moda Spira and Paige CXVI, along with a little Roman Candle in there for good measure. Special thanks to Scott Slusher and Lachlan Coffee. Daniela Rueda is our administrator. Our logos were designed by Chris Bennett. Come back next week, where I'm going to have a conversation with writer, speaker, rapper and spoken word artist, Jackie Hill Perry.
1: Nobody ever gave me the gospel. Nobody ever witnessed to me, I think, because they're like this black girl with baggy jeans on and boxers and a ponytail with a braid in her head. Like, I'm, she looks like she's good. She's gonna, but they don't know, like, I'm convicted every day and perhaps I need somebody to walk me through this.
0: See you next week. Just the other night the cross I heard a woman's voice coming up from the street below and